Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 122, recorded on September 8th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. Android 10 starts us off this week. I'm curious, did you uh, pull the trigger on a Pixel device to try it out? I actually looked on eBay, and they're not that expensive, and I was so tempted. But no, I held back. So unfortunately, I just had to watch videos and read articles about it. Well, there is a lot to consume, and we have links to some of the best in the show notes, but there's a few details that I guess you and I could talk about. Um, Mostly, it's worth, I suppose, mentioning the elf in the room right at the beginning. There's a handful of devices that are going to get the new Android 10, Pixel devices, um, a couple other uh, premium OEM devices, but a lot, and I mean most, of the handsets may never get Android 10, but it is rolling out. Us Pixel users have been able to try it in beta, which I've been using it for, for a long time in beta, and I, I would imagine I must have the final update right now. I just haven't checked. And there's so many things in here, Joe, that I think both represent a lot of change for Android, but also make it maybe my favorite Android release ever. And I know that sounds like super enthusiastic, but there's legitimately good features that protect privacy that have been missing from Android that are finally here in Android 10. Well, like being able to grant an app permission to use your location, but only when you're using that app and not when it's running in the background. That just seems to be such a basic thing that you would have expected a long time ago. But I suppose, well, at least we've got it now for those few phones that do have Android 10. Also, a really nice addition, apps will not be able to access the unchangeable device identifiers, which are things like your IEMI, things that you don't really want leaked out there are blocked now. There's no longer the possibility for apps to silently start and run in the background anymore. They ha will have to pop up a notification saying they're running. Could be kind of annoying. Could be great, though. Wi-Fi information is more restricted to the apps. And they're also working on required encrypted storage, as well as other small tweaks that I think are just nice to see that make it more approachable for human beings, which is always nice. Uh, Google has adjusted where all of this stuff is now. So it's all located in one place in the settings called privacy. <laughs> it's just really simple. Yeah, it does seem to be simplified, although they have somewhat complicated other aspects of it. Like with the digital well-being stuff, now they've got Do Not Disturb as well as this new focus mode. If you're keeping track, there's now like six different ways in current Android to essentially achieve the same thing. You've got Do Not Disturb, focus mode, app timers, which are part of the digital well-being suite. Then you have notification priority settings, which suppress some notifications. Then you have channels within notifications, which hide some notifications that are different for different apps. And then you have parental controls, which can lock some of the stuff down too. That's six different ways to achieve kind of the same thing, but they all offer a different solution. This is the part of Android 10 where I feel like it gives the perpetual beta feeling to Android. Like, it always is sort of changing. New things are getting added that are great. The way to do things gets removed. Something that's obviously needed, like some of these privacy settings, gets added. It doesn't make any particular release feel like it's the release of Android. It's just like another iterative release, which is both good and bad. I, I would love to just sort of feel like it's iterative polish at this point, but it still feels like fundamentals. Well, a couple of releases ago, they did have a kind of spit and polish release where nothing much changed and they did all the kind of basic under the hood stuff. And so now we're, we're kind of in 
the next couple of releases where they are adding all the features and then they'll probably slow down again for the next one or maybe the one after that. It's kind of almost like with Ubuntu releases where you've got your interims and your LTSs, only with Android, it's not really official. Yeah, it's true. It's a good way to look at it. I think also it, it sort of leans on the OEM's role in finalizing Android for better or for worse before it goes out to most people, except for those of us on Pixels, really. And while I can't really eloquently phrase the way I'm, I feel about this, I think the end of the Verge review really nailed it. We'll put a link in the show notes. They write, Android 10 is not a milestone. It's a mile marker. It has made real progress and is heading in the right direction, but the landscape still looks the same. A lot of phones won't get the updates. Some of the features are sort of conflicting with each other. The new gesture system looks good, but it is lacking. Like the back button functionality is really weak with the new gesture system. It just drove me crazy when I used it. But you can see they're almost there. Like one more iteration, and it's going to be pretty good. But at this point, <laughs> I would love to just see some of these features be nailed. The digital well-being, really solid. The, the touch gestures, as good as they are on iOS. Just nail those few things in a release. And yet, it's the, it's the release I'm probably the most excited about in a long time because of some of these fundamentals they've improved. I, I feel like Android's getting there now. It's, it's, it's really kind of answering some of those privacy criticisms that I had, at least when it comes to settings. Who really knows what's going on in the background? But at least when it comes to user configuration settings. I'm very surprised that we haven't mentioned dark mode yet, which is something I've had on Lineage OS for what feels like years at this point. I was just waiting smugly for you to bring it up. <laughs> I, you know, I just want to take my victory lap here. Well, yeah, you did predict that this year was going to be all about dark mode, which I think everyone agreed with. But it seems pretty cool that it will even skin lighter apps that don't have a, a proper dark mode themselves. It'll just kind of interpret how they should be dark. Although it does seem a bit hit and miss at this point. My expectation is that's going to take a little while to sort things out. Um, as far as kind of neat features go, USB port contamination and overheating detection has to be, I think, one of my favorite. This is a feature that will disable the USB port on your phone if it detects liquids or debris in there that could short it out. The Android system will post a notification informing the user that the USB port has been disabled. Once the USB port is cleaned out and free of any liquid or contaminants, the system will notify the user it's safe to reinsert accessories. And also, in addition, some of this will vary, though, keep in mind, depending on your OEM implementation. But in addition to this, they have a second feature in there that's been added to Android 10 that will advise the user to unplug the cable, the charging cable, from the phone when the phone starts overheating, which with some of these rando USB-C chargers out there is totally possible. So the system waits until it reaches 60 degrees Celsius, which it considers critical in the battery charging area. It'll start alerting the user. And then emergency mode is when the system reaches 65 degrees Celsius. I think the biggest feature is a feature that isn't there yet. They've announced it, but it's coming soon to Pixel devices. And that is live caption which is basically giving you closed captions for everything on the phone that has got voice. So whether that is videos you're watching or people you're talking to or just anything with content that's got voices on it, which is a major accessibility feature, but it's also handy for just if you're on a train or just somewhere in polite company, haven't got your headphones connected and you want to watch stuff on mute. 
Also, just a couple of honorable mentions. Vulcan Everywhere is a pretty big deal that's going to have longer-term ramifications for Android gaming and desktop Linux. That's pretty exciting because a lot of those games will likely get developed on Linux. So I think that gets an honorable mention. And then there's another feature which we don't really know how it's going to play out yet, but it, it, it seems to have serious potential. And that is, in a sense, Google has widened what it can patch via play services. And the way they're writing about this is that really important Android zero-day type security issues will be pushed automatically via the Play API, completely bypassing the OEM update process. That could be great for Android security, but again, we just kind of have to wait and see how that particular thing shakes out, just like Vulkan. Yeah, that looks like it's only going to be for phones that ship with Android 10, not ones that get updated to it. So I think it's going to be a while before we actually see that feature properly rolling out. And maybe one last honorable mention. There's a lot here. We have really useful links in the show notes at linuxactionnews.com slash 122. But when you read Google's official developer blog post about Android 10, it is packed full of phrases like on-device learning and privacy and encryption and keeping your data secure. There's a lot of things in this post that read like Apple talking points. I think there's a real interesting push and pull happening in privacy right now, and it's clearly changed the way they're thinking about Android. I, I think this is a good benefit for everybody. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see how genuine some of these statements are, but it's clear that they're getting a signal from the market that people care about this kind of stuff. And I'll give you an example. Android 10 uses on-device machine learning to suggest contextual actions and notification. Quote, keeping the machine learning processing completely on the device. We've built this feature with user privacy in mind. That's the world's biggest data collection company saying they're shifting to on-device local processing. I think that's a, that's a big sea change for them. Well, they're certainly trying to project that image of caring about privacy and stuff, so that would tie in with that. How much of that processing is actually going to happen on the phone? I'm a bit skeptical, really. We'll see. Certain devices could have dedicated silicon for this kind of thing. The CPUs on these things are monsters. They got a ton of memory. I mean, these are better than computers I had as a kid by, by an order of magnitude. It may be possible. Possibly, but we'll have to wait and see. I'm skeptical, as I say. One final honorable mention is the Essential Phone, and that was updated on release day as well, which I was very surprised at. You talked about flagships. I mean, that's getting on a bit now, and Essential, I thought, were not doing brilliantly financially and stuff, so... I was very surprised to see them shipping Android 10 on release day. Good to see them living up to that brand commitment. That is really nice. Yeah, it kind of does bode well for if they do put another phone out. I think it will be good for consumer confidence there. Well, while we're talking about phones, it's real, Joe. The Pine phone is real, and production may be ramping up sooner than a lot of us expected. Well, it's certainly sooner than I thought it'd be shipping because I saw the dev kit had hands-on with it and that was only a couple of months ago, and the software situation was rough. It was really rough. And Pine64 had made no bones about that. You know, they said it wasn't ready. But in the last month or so, there have been some serious developments with Plasma Mobile and Ubuntu Touch, and things are looking really pretty good. And so I can see why now they've gone into this very early production run where it's only for developers. The orders that they're taking now, you have to email them and explain why you want it. This isn't for 
people like me who just want to tinker with it, or even app developers. This is for people who are actually working on these mobile systems. Well, that, that probably makes a lot of sense, considering the rough state. It would be in, in the first initial run. Well, yeah. They, they don't want to ship something to normal people that isn't ready. They are taking it a very kind of gingerly and slowly, and they are completely relying on the community for the software of this thing, as is their kind of usual style. I do like that they're being upfront about that before they take anyone's money, and they're not making it easy. There's not like a buy now button on their website. You have to contact them, talk about how you're going to contribute. And then they make it clear on their website when the future batches should be available that might be more larger scale, better build, that are probably the ones general consumers would want to purchase, or, or tinkerers even. Yeah, it's good that they caveat it, though. They they always say, like, oh, well, these schedules might slip, and, you know, we're not making any firm promises, but we expect to be shipping on these dates. And so it's going to be several months before I can buy one, I think. But that might end up slipping to be a few more months. And they've been completely upfront about that, and I really admire that. The other thing to note is the price is pretty swallowable for a phone in this state. It's around $150. That's not bad. Yeah, but you can get a phone with similar specs for significantly less than that because this thing is not exactly a flagship. But given that it's small runs and a small company, 150 bucks for a phone that's running a proper GNU slash Linux-based operating system as opposed to Android, I think that it's reasonable. It's, it's the kind of money that you're not going to have to... Um, you know, convince your spouse too hard to let you spend. Yeah. And my understanding is, correct me if I'm wrong, they're going to go with Plasma Mobile for the default UI, but I've seen Ubuntu Touch running on this thing. Yeah, and Sailfish OS, there's quite a few different options there. But also in this post, they mentioned the Pinebook Pro and how exactly the kill switches are going to work and everything. So it's well worth having a read about that. And I'm hoping that I'm going to get my hands on a review unit, which I'm hoping I might get to keep. I'll have to see about that. Um, fairly soon within the next few weeks hopefully so i'll definitely be reporting back on that Ooh, yeah fingers crossed well the theme of the software releases this week is privacy and mozilla has released firefox 69 enhanced tracking protection will be turned on by default as well as blocking autoplay for videos that start playing not just the ones with sound, you know, like a lot of those freaking news articles that start, but the it's muted, <laughs> like that gets them anything. Yeah. It's blogging that now too. There's just other nice little quality of life things in there. Windows 10 users specifically get a few upgrades. Mac users get a few nice things. But us Linux users, we're happy with our tracking blocking. That's fine. That's good. You know, I'm all Wayland right now with Firefox, Joe. It is smooth. It is smoother than Chrome. There's a few glitches with Chrome. But Firefox on Wayland, smooth. We've had this cookie blocking and crypto mining blocking for a while, but it is important now that it is default. And you know it's working when you get a little shield. That's always reassuring, isn't it? I do like the shield. It's the small things. I'll tell you, you know, there's a like a esoteric quote unquote change in this version of Firefox that I think shows a genuine depth of which they are thinking about user privacy. They note with the deprecation of Adobe Flash Player. There's no longer a need to identify users on 32-bit versions of Firefox or 64-bit versions. So they're just taking that aspect out of the user agent to reduce fingerprinting because it's one of the factors, you know, one of the things unique about you if you're 32-bit or 64-bit that they can use. Tracking can. And they're just going to pull it out because they don't need it. You know what? They don't need it. Yeah, that is a good move. And you can turn on the anti-fingerprinting stuff already 
and they say that they're looking to make it default in the near future, which is good, because there was a post on the Tor blog this week about fingerprinting, and I read it and I'm scared, quite frankly. I had no idea quite how in-depth and easy this stuff was. Yeah, there's all kinds of little ways your system leaks information about you that are obvious in retrospect, like the user ID agent or specific font capabilities that your browser presents that it has. But I think what is happening behind the scenes is this tracking thing is really, really beginning to brew. We're going to see a lot of different things being claimed. Like Google just recently shot over at Apple for their hardline anti-tracking stance. Then Apple shot back at them for having no anti-tracking. And it was this, it's this public back and forth between two giant corporations, um, of course, at the individual level. And then you also have the industry, the ad industry, quote-unquote, the IAB, that is working on a universal tracking system that sounds kind of spooky, but they think it's really great. This something here is about to break. I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't take till 2020, but something here's got to give. Two tectonic plates that are just really pushing against each other right now. Did you go to amiunique.org and see if you're unique with your fingerprint? All right, I'll go right now. Are you ready? Amiunique.org. This is the studio machine, so this isn't my regular machine. Um, let's see. I'll view my browser fingerprint. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Yes, I am. Yeah, so am I. It says, yes, you can be tracked because I'm using Ubuntu version 69, UTC plus one, English, because there's so many different things they can use to fingerprint you. And of over a million samples that they have, I'm unique. So I must be pretty easy to track. <laughs> yeah, it's all kinds of things you don't, like I said, you don't consider. Does your browser support certain types of compression formats? It can add all of these up and eventually kind of gets a pretty solid idea. And for what they're going for, I mean, this isn't medical science, right? It's it's ad tracking science. So if they get within pretty close, that's good enough for ad work, really. And uh, they get there now. And so it's interesting to see Firefox just making really small adjustments deep down, like taking out the 32 and 64-bit identifier because, well, we don't have to support Flash anymore. We don't need this. And just kind of making these low-level tweaks over time that are making it harder and harder to track. And you've got Apple, who's taking that hardline stance. And then you've got Google, who's working with the IAB to try to come up with this universal token that isn't tied to your name, but is unique to you, which would allow you to also universally opt out if everyone used this system and respected that setting. Well, just like do not track, hey? Yeah. Yeah, just like that. <laughs> <laughs> it is really great to see Mozilla taking strides here and, and taking a lead, really. I know that Apple's kind of doing it as well to some extent, but Mozilla is not being left behind. And I'm tempted to turn on that anti-fingerprinting, but it does warn you that things will break. So maybe I should just do it and see what happens. Wouldn't be bad to try it for a little while. Yeah. You know, like I've tried NoScript here and there every now and then. Yeah, I think what you see here with Mozilla is a real comprehensive, elegant approach to this that is evolving over time. You've seen Apple take some some real like sort of swath cuts at some low-hanging fruit and just taking some hard lines, which is good and and sorts of sets a bar. But I like Mozilla's approach of just iteratively over time finding every little knob they can turn. Yeah, it seems like Mozilla have been doing a lot of good stuff lately, so let's hope they keep it up. Yeah, it feels like they're back on track these days. Well, Red Hat is certainly on track with OpenShift, and they just continue to double down on that. 
This week, they're releasing their code-ready containers, which think of them as a minimal, ready-to-go OpenShift 4.1 or potentially newer environment that you can use to develop software on your local system and then deploy for the cloud. There are some somewhat hefty minimum requirements to give you an idea of what you're working with here. You'll need four virtual CPUs, eight gigabytes of RAM, and 35 gigabytes of storage. But when you have allocated all of that, you've got an OpenShift cluster that's ready to go for local development in an environment that matches your production OpenShift environment. And this isn't just for Linux. It's using the native hypervisors on macOS and Windows as well. Yeah, that's kind of clever. That's kind of the clever part of this, is it It really lets anyone that has an existing investment in, in a, any particular desktop system still develop for new systems they're deploying in the cloud. And OpenShift is, I think, one of those key pieces of that whole IBM hybrid cloud pitch is OpenShift because it's kind of the key piece of software orchestration that lets you put it all together and manage it. And so this is kind of a brilliant move. New investment in server infrastructure, deploy Red Hat and OpenShift, and then on your existing Windows and Mac investments, deploy the development environment for free. I mean, it's it's clever. It could You could see how corporate America could use the heck out of this. Oh, definitely. And it goes to show that potentially... OpenShift is the new rail, you know, maybe not yet, but down the line, it's it's where they will potentially be making most of their money. Yeah, well, rail will be just the, well, it is, it's an implementation detail now, because it, it could also be core OS. I mean, it's uh, it's fascinating to consider something that we obsess about so much, Linux, to just be a simple implementation detail here, but that's it's truly what it means. And I think the other way to look at this is, this is Red Hat's version of WSL2, or one of the fundamental value propositions of Ubuntu in the corporate environment is you can have developers on a desktop OS that matches your Ubuntu systems in the cloud. That's one of the things that's really made Ubuntu successful on the desktop. And it's the reason why WSL2 exists. It's the reason why Linux applications and Linux environments are coming to Chromebooks. It's that develop in your production environment on your desktop mentality. That that workflow seems to just be a killer workflow for developers, and everybody wants to have their implementation of it. Yeah, there's a reason why Red Hat did so well and got bought for so much money, eh? Hmm, that hybrid cloud future. It's uh, future money, Joe. It's in the cloud. We just haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> I think, though, it's it's a good good indicator that there's always going to be a reason to invest in some level of Linux desktop technologies. Different implementations utilize the desktop stack in different ways, like this OpenShift one is more about just enabling development on other platforms. But there are some that push the desktop forward and make it part of that corporate strategy. So in other words, desktop Linux success is often linked to the success on the server system. It's, it's, a, it's a beneficial cycle. Well, if it's not the proper Linux desktop, it'll probably end up being Chrome OS. That's true. I have a theory about that. We've been doing a deep dive on Chrome OS in the last week to talk about it on Linux Unplugged this week. It's not not an immediately obvious thing, but Chrome OS very well may be the successful Linux desktop future, much like Android brought Linux to the masses. We'll see. 
we have a little deep dive in this week's Linux Unplugged coming up. Oh, I look forward to listening to it two or three times. <laughs> As the editor, you will. <laughs> in the meantime, <laughs> go get this show every single week. Check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And if you're not subscribed already, our new show, Self-Hosted, launches on September 12th, 2019. Go to selfhosted.show slash subscribe. So that way you get it automatically. And then you'll get every episode fortnightly. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Rissington. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. See you later.